the Senate will return tomorrow. The House has issued a new legislative calendar for the rest of the year. Previously, there were two kinds of days on the House calendar. Session days, when the House was in session in the District of Columbia, and district work days, when the House was not in session and members were working back in their home districts. Because of the coronavirus crisis, the the House has now added a third kind of day to the House calendar, committee work days, where the House is not in session, but committees are conducting their work. From Monday, June 1 through Monday, June 29, every weekday is now listed as a committee work day. The House is scheduled to come back into session on Tuesday, June 30th, and will stay in session through Thursday, July 2nd. That's three days before spending the following two weeks in more committee work days. Last week on the House floor, the House came back into session on Wednesday and took up S-3744, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, under suspension of the rules. The bill was the first bill ever to be brought to the House floor under a controversial new House rule that allows for proxy voting. The bill passed by a vote of 413 to 1. Because it had already passed the Senate by voice vote, it was sent on to the White House for the President's signature. Then the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of the Senate amendments to H.R. 6172, the USA Freedom Reauthorization Act. The rule passed by a vote of 228 to 189. On Thursday, the House came back and took up H.R. 6782, the Truth Act, under suspension of the rules. The Truth Act would require the Small Business Associate, I'm sorry, the Small Business Informa- Administration to make publicly available certain information regarding the Paycheck Protection Program and economic injury, economic injury disaster loans and emergency grants. It failed by a vote of 269 to 147. An hour later, the House came back to take up H.R. 7010, the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act, also brought to the floor under suspension of the rules. The bill was co-sponsored by Democrat Dean Phillips and Republican Chip Roy and would allow businesses that took out PPP loans more flexibility in how to use those loans. The bill passed by a vote of 417 to 1. Then the House tried to take up the USA Freedom Act reauthorization bill to renew the expired surveillance provisions that Chris was just talking about. We'll talk more about that in a moment. For now, suffice it to say that the coalition supporting the bill fell apart and Speaker Pelosi had to pull the bill from consideration. So instead, she decided to go to conference with the Senate. The motion to go to conference passed by a vote of 284 to 122. And then they were done, not to return until the last day of June. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate was in recess last week. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. That will be a roll call vote on confirmation of John Leonard Badalamente to be U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Florida. Based on Leader McConnell's cloture filings during the course of the week, I anticipate that the Senate will vote on the following confirmations. Victor G. Mercado to be Assistant Secretary of Defense. Brian D. Miller to be Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery. James H. Anderson to be Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. And Drew B. Tipton to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Texas. Now, let's talk about the agenda. Between now and the end of the year, there are only a few must-pass bills. First, there's likely to be at least one more coronavirus response bill. Two weeks ago, the House passed a $3 trillion spending bill that laid down the House's opening bid. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told the president last week that the next coronavirus response bill cannot spend more than a trillion dollars. So I'm betting the compromise number will be north of a trillion dollars, but less than three trillion dollars. 
Second, because the House failed to pass anything having to do with FISA reauthorization and decided instead to go to conference with the Senate, we'll have the conference report to pass if and when that eventually happens. I don't have a timeline on that yet, but I imagine that's going to be a rather high priority for the leadership in both houses. Then we've got the 12 annual appropriations bills and the annual National Defense Authorization Act. Progressives in the House have already announced they want to cut the Pentagon budget to allow for more spending on the domestic side during the pandemic. Then there are the less frequent but just as difficult bills, the federal highway bill, flood insurance, and water infrastructure. And the Violence Against Women Act is, is expiring soon, so that will need reauthorization. Those bills will all have to be dealt with as standalones, but the appropriations bills can be wrapped up into larger bills. So I expect we'll be seeing several minibus appropriations bills before we get to September. So stay tuned on that. Now to more on the Flynn setup. On Tuesday, May 19th, the Trump administration released the full and unredacted previously declassified email that former National Security Advisor Susan Rice sent to herself on the day of President Trump's inauguration. That email said that former FBI Director James Comey worried about sharing classified intelligence with the incoming Trump team because he had concerns about incoming National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn's regular conversations with the Russian ambassador. But the email also said, Comey said he had no knowledge that Flynn had shared any classified information with the Russian ambassador. Ambassador Rice called on the Trump administration to release the transcripts of the calls between Flynn and the Russian ambassador. The administration did so on Friday, releasing them to Senators Ron Johnson, Chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, and Chuck Grassley, Chairman of the Finance Committee. Professor Jonathan Turley, writing in The Hill, analyzed the transcripts. Quote, for three years, he wrote, Congressional Democrats have assured us Flynn's calls to Kislyak were so disturbing that they set off alarms in the closing days of the Obama administration. They were right. The newly released transcripts of Flynn's calls are deeply disturbing, not for their evidence of criminality or collusion, but for the total absence of such evidence. The transcripts, declassified Friday, strongly support new investigations by both the Justice Department and by Congress, starting with next week's Senate testimony by former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. It turns out Flynn's calls are not just predictable, but even commendable at points. What was not discussed was any quid pro quo or anything untoward or unlawful. The real question is why the FBI continued to investigate Flynn in the absence of any crime or evidence of collusion, unquote. Now to House rules. You will recall that two weeks ago, the House held a vote on a resolution that would change House rules to allow for voting by proxy. The resolution passed on a virtually straight party line vote with no Republican votes in favor. A week later, Speaker Pelosi triggered the resolution, setting up last week's votes as the first ever use of proxy voting on the House floor. Late Tuesday of last week, 21 House Republicans, led by Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia against Speaker Pelosi in a bid to block the new proxy voting scheme. Generally speaking, the suit says that proxy voting is unconstitutional because the Constitution says a quorum is required to conduct business, and they say that Congress has an obligation to meet in person. Democrats respond that the Constitution specifically gives each House the authority to set for itself its own rules. 
On Wednesday, the House instituted its first vote-by-proxy roll call on the House floor. Two Florida Democrats sent in their proxies, claiming that the pandemic prevented them from returning to Washington to conduct their business. Wrote Congressman Charlie Crist, quote, I am... Excuse me. I am unable to physically attend proceedings in the House chamber due to the ongoing public health emergency, and I hereby grant the authority to cast my vote by proxy to the Honorable Stephanie Murphy, Florida, who has agreed to serve as my proxy, end quote. Christ was joined by fellow Florida Democrat Congressman Darren Soto, who also sent in his proxy. The only problem was the two Florida Democrats busted themselves later on Wednesday when they tweeted to the world that they were actually attending the historic SpaceX launch to send American astronauts back to the space station. On Friday, an additional 140 House Republicans joined the lawsuit. So is proxy voting constitutional? Well, it hasn't been tested in the courts before because it's never happened before, and our court system does not allow a court to consider a hypothetical case. Here are some of the items that can help us deduce the framers' intents regarding the need for in-person voting. The Constitution includes a requirement that the Congress, quote, shall assemble at least once in every year, unquote. The Constitution includes a provision prohibiting the arrest or detainment of its members as they travel to or from the Congress. Not only does the Constitution indicate that a majority of its members of the House shall form a quorum to do business, it also includes language that authorizes the House to, quote, compel the attendance of absent members, unquote, in order to form that very quorum. Those data points would support an interpretation that the Constitution requires in-person voting. On the other hand, Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution says, quote, each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, unquote. And the courts historically don't like to involve themselves in disputes such as these. So we'll see where this court case goes. Now to the Russia probe continued. On Monday, May 18, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham announced that the Judiciary Committee would vote on June 4th to authorize subpoenas for documents and testimony from more than 50 current and former governmental officials, including former FBI Director James Comey, former DNI James Clapper, and former CIA Director John Brennan, as part of the committee's investigation into the origins of the FBI's crossfire hurricane Russia collusion probe. That vote will follow by one day testimony before the panel by former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Graham has also announced his intent to hold hearings about the Obama administration's practice of unmasking the identity of General Michael Flynn in intelligence reports. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, announced last week that his committee, too, will hold a vote on June 4 to authorize subpoenas to 35 current and former officials for documents and testimony. Now to a little more on surveillance reauthorization. The House came back into session last week for the express purpose of reauthorizing the USA Freedom Act, but left town with a polled vote and a decision instead to go to conference with the Senate. It was one of Speaker Pelosi's few defeats in a floor fight. The action began Tuesday evening when President Trump tweeted his opposition to the bill and threatened to veto it if it passed. The House Democratic leadership spent all day Wednesday whipping the bill, but Republicans, about two-thirds of whom had voted for a version of the bill back in March when it last hit the floor, were peeling off quickly. And on the left, the 100-member Progressive Caucus was opposed to the bill and saw the opportunity to tank it. 
So Wednesday evening, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Steny Hoyer argued amongst themselves. Hoyer wanted to put the bill on the floor and force the vote. But Pelosi, having spoken to the White House Legislative Affairs team, had concluded there was no point in pushing the bill to the floor because Trump had turned against it. So she made the decision to pull the bill Wednesday evening. Members were told then to expect a vote on the bill the following day. But as Thursday morning turned into late Thursday morning, it became clear to Pelosi and Hoyer that nothing had changed. So instead of bringing the bill to the floor and trying to muscle it through, they decided to pull the bill entirely and instead move a motion to go to conference with the Senate. On the personnel front, on Tuesday, May 19th, the Senate Intelligence Committee approved the nomination of Congressman John Ratcliffe of Texas to serve as Director of National Intelligence in a straight party line vote of 8-7. That set up a vote by the full Senate two days later. Ratcliffe was approved by the Senate by a vote of 49-44. to Now to the Twitter wars. Tuesday evening, President Trump tweeted his opposition to mail-in balloting, warning of the potential for voter fraud. Twitter responded by adding a warning phrase to two of his tweets that called such balance fraudulent and warned that mailboxes will be robbed. The Twitter added warning language read, quote, get the facts about mail-in ballots, unquote, and included a link to a CNN story about mail-in ballots. What Twitter did was ridiculous. President Trump is entitled to his opinion, no less and no more than anyone else. And it was ridiculous that Twitter felt a need to add a warning label to his opinion. President Trump was not pleased. And on Wednesday, he threatened social media companies. He tweeted, quote, we will strongly regulate or close them down before we can ever allow this to happen, unquote. Later, he tweeted, quote, big action to follow, unquote. On Thursday, he signed an executive order that seeks to limit the broad legal protections enjoyed by social media companies under Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, also known as the CDA. Those protections allow the social media companies to act as platforms for content rather than as publishers. It's those protections that allow, for instance, users to add personal reviews to sites like Yelp or Angie's List without the owners of Yelp and Angie's List having to worry about being sued by business owners who don't like the negative reviews that sometimes get posted to Yelp and Angie's List. The order also tries to make it easier for federal regulators to hold social media companies liable if they're seen as unfairly restricting their users' speech by, for instance, deleting their posts or suspending their accounts. Reported the Wall Street Journal, quote, Mr. Trump, who frequently posts on Twitter and has more than 80 million followers on the platform, said that if his lawyers could find a way to legally shut down Twitter, quote, I would do it, unquote. Okay, what Twitter did was wrong, but it's a bit scary when I read about a president of the United States just saying flat out that he would shut down Twitter if he could. The answer to bad speech is not to shut it down. The answer to bad speech is more good speech. Moreover, it bears repeating that the First Amendment limits government action, not action by a private company. Twitter is a private company. It can do what it wants to restrict speech on its own platform or censor speech on its own platform or add what it calls warning labels to a user's individual post. There is no right to spread your opinion unrestricted through Twitter. Nevertheless, Twitter is not helping itself in this public relations battle. On Friday morning, it labeled another Trump tweet, saying the tweet, quote, glorified violence, unquote, for using an old civil rights era quote, a quote of which the president later said he did not know its origins. 
And Twitter decided to slap a warning label on a Trump tweet while totally ignoring violence-glorifying tweets from other sources, including the government of Iran. So, as I said, Twitter is not doing itself any good. Facebook, whose CEO has taken a different tack from Twitter's, nevertheless responded in a statement that repealing or limiting the, perfection, the protections afforded social media companies by Section 230 would, quote, restrict more speech online, not less, unquote, and, quote, would penalize companies that choose to allow controversial speech and encourage platforms to censor anything that might offend anyone, unquote. The order directs the Commerce Department to petition the Federal Communications Commission to begin a rulemaking proceeding to clarify the scope of the protections afforded to the social media companies by Section 230. Note that the order does not direct the FCC itself to do anything. That's because the FCC is an independent agency and does not respond directly to the President of the United States. So instead, the President is directing the Commerce Department, which does respond to his authority, to ask the FCC to launch a new rulemaking. And here's where it gets tricky. Some experts don't think the FCC even has the legal authority to enforce Section 230. For his part, the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, said the commission, quote, will carefully review any petition for rulemaking filed by the Department of Commerce, end quote. And one of the two Democrat-appointed members of the five-member commission issued a statement in response to a draft of the order saying, quote, this does not work, unquote. Mark Levin does not agree. On his radio show on Thursday, Levin said, quote, Twitter has moved from its original position as an open platform with certain restrictions and limits, you know, crimes and pornography and so forth. But in terms of ideas, right or wrong, true or false, for which it was originally protected by Congress in 1996, protected against liability. And the reason it was protected against liability is because it was viewed as a neutral traffic site. People post what they want to post, pretty much say whatever they want to say. You can police it in terms of immoral comments or activity, that sort of thing. But the content, per se, particularly political content, no, they didn't do it. And they never were going to do it. So they get a special protection from Congress because it's basically neutral. It's not even an arbiter. I've heard it called a neutral arbiter. It's not an arbiter. It's where a community was built and now a massive community for people to post and communicate and so forth and so on. And so the goal there was with Congress, well, let's protect this from lawsuits, libel suits, and so forth and so on. Because after all, Twitter's not involved in the substance of this stuff. It's not making judgments on content of that sort. It's simply a mechanical operation. It's a platform. But it's not that anymore. And it's decided slowly but surely to change its mission. So it doesn't have a mission that is neutral. Now it's going to fact check and in part, it's going to fact check based on CNN and the Washington Post. And its fact checkers are ardent liberal Democrats. Well, then, that seems to change things. So it's gone from a neutral site where people go to communicate one with the other or communicate with the world or communicate with themselves, for all I know, to something fundamentally different. Fact checking, content checking, arbitrating, and obviously from a liberal perspective. And it also has assigned to itself the authority to post a scarlet letter or what they call a label in which they determined that the information provided is not accurate. So they've made a major change, and they're censoring people or pulling them off the site altogether based on the content of their comments. So having moved from an open platform to content control, 
It has transformed into something different, something different than what it was in 1996. This has nothing to do with free speech, as I hear some of these doofus radical libertarians say. This has nothing to do with controlling a private company. It got a special privilege from Congress that I don't get. Congress didn't pass a law and say, you know, that Mark Levin, we've got to protect him. He's got to be able to promote liberty and the Constitution and free markets and Americanism. Let's protect Mark. No. So they got a special rare privilege from Congress to protect it against liabilities, and they want to keep it even though they fundamentally changed. And the president and the attorney general are saying, wait a minute, you've changed. And now we're stretching this 1996 law to accommodate Twitter, a private corporation. If it's going to do fact checking and labeling and censoring, it's no longer a neutral site, a platform where people just come. As a private company, it doesn't get special privileges as a matter of right. There's no reason it should have a special privilege anymore. It's that simple, unquote. It's hard to argue with that logic. That said, I have no idea how this one is going to play out, so stay tuned. And that's our Washington Report for this week.